0: Well, hello there. Welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? So, apparently,
1: the latest version of these unboxing videos is unwrapping. So, somebody, this some freak, some total perfect apparently, has started this new trend where they unwrap presents, but then there's nothing inside them.
2: I like that. Just the, the true
0: emptiness <laughs> oh, inside. A short... You gotta just acquaint happy. kids with that early. <laughs> that's, that's kind <laughs> of, of a <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> all right so welcome to alpha bunga bunga and a special welcome to our guest today Ashley Frawley uh, she's senior lecturer in sociology and social policy at the University of Swansea today what we're talking about is the public emotionalism and what it means for politics and we're going to expand on this so on this episode, Joining uh, Ashley and myself, Alex Hokely, are Phil Cunliffe and George Hoare in the UK. And we've got Ben Fogel here with me in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Um, to introduce Ashley a bit before we get started, uh, Ashley's first book was, on the semi- was called The Semiotics of Happiness, which looks at why happiness has become the object of public policy today. And her, forth- her forthcoming work, which is out next year, uh, is called Significant Emotions, Rhetoric and Social Problems in a Vulnerable Age. And as far as I understand, this expands on uh, the previous work on happiness, arguing that a current concern with emotions is not a sign of a more enlightened and emotionally aware society, but rather signals a preoccupation with emotional deficit and vulnerability. So we're going to unpick all of this uh, and also look a bit more broadly at how these things relate to issues such as moral panics, identity politics, and more, and maybe ask what the ways out of this impasse might be. Uh, Ashley, thanks very much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, so uh, to kick off, um, I'm going to quote something from the introduction of your happiness book and as a way of kind of uh, maybe introducing the issues and if you could then explain and unpack what that means a little bit for us. Um, so you write that the treating of happiness as a public problem is not a signifier of a desire to improve or optimize underlying mental states, nor is it even about these mental states at all. Rather, it is implicitly a critique of change. It expresses a fear of the future articulated through a series of paradoxes that purport to describe the true nature of happiness and progress, but which really express a deep seated uncertainty about the future and consequent desire to maintain the present. So there's a lot in there, um, but it's also very intriguing because it's not something that wouldn't would immediately associate happiness and a fear of change necessarily. Um, So what does this all mean?
3: Yeah, so... Um, it's uh, the last thing that you said was really interesting. You said you wouldn't normally um, associate happiness with fear of change, and that's it's interesting because um, that's part of the reason why happiness initially as a signifier became so powerful. Because when you hear it, you you can pour whatever you want into it, right? You can sort of um, its contents can be whatever you want it to be. But what it meant to the people who were using it and who were forwarding it as, you know, a policy objective, as a solution to social problems, as a problem in itself, was something quite specific, um, something quite scientized and and reified. Um, and and actually, that wasn't open to debate at all. It wasn't open to, to pouring whatever content you wanted into it. So ironically, it was allowed to float. So they, people wouldn't, when they were sort of making these claims in the public sphere, which is what I what I was studying, these public claims, they wouldn't necessarily define happiness. In fact, they would dance around it and try to avoid defining it as much as possible to allow people to connect with it at that sort of emotional, obviously visceral kind of level and, and to allow it to mean whatever it meant to you. But at the same time in like policy documents and in books and so on it was this very specific thing Um, and what's interesting is that as time went on and uh, what I call claims makers or you know advocates for this issue um, and became you know um, more concerned with its institutionalization into policy and so on the more it drifted away from what everyday people thought of as, as happiness you know so you might think of it as like a kiss from your child, a sunset, that catches you unaware, sitting in a you know field full of daisies,
0: whatever.
3: Um, but Not me. For, um, yeah. <laughs> Even having a drink. Who knows? Yeah. Ah, um, for-
0: uh, that's better. You know me How well. Did- that's
3: yeah. I was yes. say, How do you know? How do you know that? <laughs> yeah. But for these people, it, it was it was you know that wasn't true happiness. You know, having a drink. You no no no, that's bad for your body, right? Mm. Um, it, it became it it took on the weight of already existing agendas, right? Um, and so, true happiness was like pro-social spending, and like it became this very you know um, you know whatever content the particular advocate wanted to pour into it. Having a healthy body as, as well as a healthy mind, you know. So basically, the health promotion agenda as well right. as well. So. So, um, yeah. So a lot of these claims that were being made about happiness—it's um, interesting that you wouldn't necessarily expect that. Um, and 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 whenever I'm interviewed about it, you know, people are thinking they've always got in their mind this sort of like. Um, loose kind of concept they don't quite exactly know what they mean by it maybe they're thinking about greek philosophy or something like that and i'm always trying to say actually no this is a very specific thing that um people started to talk about in a very specific way at a very specific time doesn't actually go back you know obviously you know um greek philosophy was talking about happiness a long long time ago but what claims you know, or like every everybody had something to say about happiness, rhetorically off-the-cuff kind of remarks about what happiness is throughout history. But only some of these claims went on to become powerful at a particular time. A very small number of them went on to to influence policy and and, and go on to po- influence policy now. I mean, you, so could that's you, what
0: I... Could you maybe like be a little bit more specific then, just to give kind of our listeners some concrete examples of how happiness played out in policy terms? Because as you say it's quite a prescriptive notion of what happiness is. And some are allowed, some some aren't. So how does that play out? And then also maybe what the role of experts is in that.
2: And also maybe if you could like uh, put a chronology of the turn to happiness, if you would like. So our, um, we, where we can understand where this political uh, moment begins.
3: Okay. Well, actually, the um, the the particular claims that were being made brings me to the the what you had actually initially asked me, which was how is happiness a critique of change? Right. So I'd mentioned that happiness is a signifier of an uncertainty about change, um, and actually some of the key claims the the big claims that really made an impact were those claims that uh, that so the number one claim that that really came out um and was repeated again and again and again is money doesn't buy happiness and um this graph that they would these happiness claims makers would constantly bring out which was um the happiness surveys that they were doing you know that they started doing in the late 1940s where they would ask people usually on like a, sometimes on a scale of like one, uh, you know, not happy to very happy (laughs) or on like a 10 point scale or sometimes they would, you know, ask people to visualize a ladder and say, you know, the happiest life at the top and so on. So they would do these happiness surveys and um, they, over time, since they started doing these happiness surveys, people have rated themselves about the same level of happiness, it's pretty constant around the world. Um, you know, so on a 10-point scale, most people, for example, will rate themselves about a 7. And they've done so since the late 1940s. Now, that doesn't necessarily tell us a huge amount. But what they do is they put that, that line that doesn't go up and down very much. Uh, they'll plot that against GDP, for instance. And they'll make claims like, in spite of huge growth in GDP, we are no happier. Or, in spite of um, rising incomes, we are no happier in spite of and it became this claim of you know whatever it was that the claims maker wanted to problematize you plotted that against happiness and it became this very powerful way of criticizing that thing so what is all this money for if it's not to make us happier what is all this income for if it's not to make us happier what is all this consumerism for and those were the big things right mm. and, and it was always money money doesn't make us happier that was the powerful claim that was repeated again and again and again the number one claim that emerged as the most important in my research. Um, that and you can tell when something is hitting a cultural note when people repeat it but what I find very interesting about that is that there are a lot of things that you could put on that graph <laughs> um, like um, in spite of the fact that women have Much more choice and equality, we are no happier. Uh, In spite of the fact that we have, you know, like um, people of different ethnicities and and quote unquote races are living together in relative harmony by comparison to the past, uh, we are no happier. You know, there's, you know, a lot of basically, absolutely nothing that's happened from the late 1940s to the present has made anybody happier. (laughs) <laughs> so
0: just give up on history i mean that's that's the point right <laughs>
3: well of course because the whole thing is a bit silly you know you you this is why i find i find happiness to s- speak so much like the fact that it became so powerful tells us so much about the presentism of our times because at hard heart's a presentist concept i mean if you ask me you know, to fill out a happiness survey, I'm not thinking like, well, we're not terraforming Mars and I'm, I haven't got a flying car and I was promised a jetpack. No, you know, you, you're thinking about your time period, your family, your needs, whatever, which are culturally, historically bound, right? You're not, yeah. you don't compare yourself to the way people were 300 years ago. Uh, and you don't compare yourself to a future of possibility as yet unknown to you. But that doesn't mean that there's no future isn't better than today uh, than the past
2: um can i just uh, ask you to um so uh from implication you say uh I, from the last comment just made uh when would you did they start measuring happiness in the 1940s or is this a more recent invention when exactly did these happiness surveys begin and was it something that came out of the united states the united kingdom or does it have where where, where exactly is it originate from
3: so, um, you you all. I suppose this is. I can answer both the questions that you asked me. So you asked me if there's um, if I could give you sort of a timeline yeah. of happiness claims. Yeah. So they started doing these surveys in a small way in the late 1940s. Um, but there was a movement that emerged several decades later called the Social Indicators Movement, which um was a movement for alternative indicators besides monetary indicators of progress. Um. And so, subjective well-being um, became a one indicator within that broader movement, um, and that uh, that the sort of impulse, the cultural impulse that um, pushed some of that, you know, was was questioning the idea of wealth and progress. This idea that wealth and progress are ne- necessarily related. Um, and if you think about the sort of world context, um, these alternative indicators of progress besides monetary ones became more powerful first in non Western countries and in the developing world. um, Because um, the old development sort of um ethos that you know the idea of the the whole world would eventually become as developed as the west or would develop along the same lines of the west was starting to be critically questioned around that time and so this i you know the idea that wealth would bring progress um started to be questioned well because these countries were not they're not you know wealth the the expansion democratization of wealth just wasn't happening um and so i think uh part of the reason why they become so powerful there is at least partially out of a recognition of the fact that trying to create development along the lines of the west was actually creating social problems but also pro-growth policy was demonstrably not working and so there was a desire to measure progress and success in some other terms, <laughs> partially out of necessity. Um, so this sort of social indicators movement, of which subjective well-being was one indicator, grew up around that time, around uh, um, the sort of beginnings of growth skepticism.
0: Mm. I mean, this um, seem just seemed to kind of confuse a couple of different things because, I mean, there's something self-evidently kind of true or it's a truism that, you know, money doesn't buy you happiness. And, you know, few people would suggest that explicitly that, you know, there's obviously the the, the famous uh, Spike Milligan quote, which is, all I want is a chance to prove that money can't buy me happiness. Um, <laughs> which I think it, that there's a certain truth to that, right? You you know, you don't expect money to be the be-all and end-all, but, you know, having a certain standard of living definitely does make your life better. So, um, But I think there seems to be also confusion between this, you know, national GDP, which you can criticize as being uh, a, a very, uh, not very useful measure of, of social progress or development. Um, but at the same time, you know, you have that's brought in with the idea of individual wealth or individual, you know, income or whatever, uh, which are rather different things. Um, so, so, maybe- so actually, I actually had a question here,
1: which leads right on from this, this, um, I don't know if you heard about this gross national happiness um, yeah. idea. So, yeah. So is, is this is this all part of this movement, which is kind of against, I guess it's kind of anti-consumerist. It's this idea that, you, you know, you can't just accumulate all these things. Instead, let's look for, for a whole society at a new measure which can which can show us how these societies are ranking in relation to each other. And so we should look at gross national happiness. So what what's your take on this um, this idea that Bhutan, I think, had and was trying to push out to the world?
3: Yeah, uh, I find that very interesting because um, I think in, in the book I, I talk about how a lot of this, the the impulses, this sort of romanticism, um, this desire. So that like within at least within Western or Anglo American cultures, there's this pervasive cultural idea that the past was terrible, the future's much worse. So the answer is to sort of. Um, sustain the present, you know, so sustainability became like this big buzzword. And I think that, um, uh, that, that the, the the, the progressive sort of impulse that, um, romanticism was reacting to is gone now. And so all that you have masquerading as radicalism is this romantic desire to go back to an imagined past. And it leads us to look, um, with perhaps a little bit too much um, positivity or or not be critical enough of of the non of of the non-western world and and the and and ways of living elsewhere, as though that's sort of a more a, a, a truer and more authentic way of life as mm-hmm. opposed to looking at them as like feudal throwbacks and um, <clears throat> and and places in which poverty is endemic. Um, so Boudin is a good example of this. So it's not that Bhutan was this wonderful, happy little kingdom in the Himalayas as everybody was sort of portraying it. Um, part of the reason why they they had this idea of gross national happiness was um, they were ambivalent about the effects of modernity on their country and in particular the influx of migration of migrants. Um, And so one of the pillars of gross national happiness was the maintenance of tradition. And in support of that pillar, they um, deported large numbers of their ethnic minorities. (laughs) And nobody- (laughs) I I didn't know that. Yeah, nobody brings that story up. I think I've seen it once, like one journalist dug it up. Um, and, 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 And you know, why, why? Well, because we like to look at the other as living this like more authentic existence closed off from, nobody lives outside of modernity, outside of globalization. Nobody is untouched by, um, you know, the forces of, of, um, of you know, the forces of history. Um, and this idea that we can just sort of escape that by um, going to this imaginary land where they've just frozen, in the past, really speaks volumes about our present moment. And there's uh, another documentary that, or, or sorry, a documentary that really illustrates this well. Um, um, called I think it was something like Happiness Economics or something like that. Oh, uh, it's just a shame that I, I I just thought of this now. I could have looked up the title, but um, basically they they talk they they talk about like what is essentially an old feudal <laughs> organization uh, where people are locked into the their the positions into which they're born um, as this wonderful localist utopia, and it's. It's poverty and it's, it's a kingdom, you know, it's, it's terrible.
0: Well, so, so let me, let me um, push you a yeah. little bit on this, um, a little bit more directly, because, I mean, we're all certainly critical of that sort of romanticism and would be strong defendants of, of modernity. Um, but is that is this sort of romantic attitude and specifically the way in which happiness was treated, is that a bit passé? I mean, has that moment now gone, especially mm-hmm. post the crash of 2008 And all the political repercussions that have followed, you know, whether you want to take it as Trump and Brexit or whatever other political dislocations that have happened as a consequence. um, This discourse seems to have faded from view a little bit. Uh, Do you buy that? Do you agree with that?
3: Um, So there are two things there. It is passe, um, but not because of the crash. So um, it's passe because these things run their course. They always do. Um, in the current uh, book that I'm writing, um, I, I conceptualize um, these um, the, the the tendency to focus in on particular emotions and to sort of rally behind them as the banner of our uh, you know uh, of our times or the the cause and solution to all problems. I conceptualize them as as cycles cycles of discovery, adoption, expansion, and exhaustion. So we discover this new emotional signifier, and it explains everything and everybody. <laughs> Uh, Adopts it and expands it to explain a, an increasingly large array of social problems, and then as it gets stretched beyond its breaking point, because ultimately emotions don't explain very much about why human beings do what they do. Interestingly, even even though we're in a we're at a cultural moment where we think irrationality and emotion guides everything, I, I don't actually think that's the case. I think we need to look deeper at things that precede each individual human being. Um, but anyways, um, so they they get stretched past their breaking point and then uh the cycle of critique begins and um a new but but the thing is that that so they become exhausted but there's never any shortage of new emotional signifiers to take their place somebody else is the new big idea so there was self-esteem you might remember it in the late 80s 1990s <laughs> self-esteem was the big yeah. idea I that, used to remember um,
2: self-esteem
0: <laughs>
3: I actually, I was 10 years old. I gave a speech on self-esteem.
2: <laughs> I remember in my uh, in South Africa when I was growing up, in my life orientation class in high school, which was compulsory uh, by government decree, self-esteem was part of our officially mandated lessons mm-hmm. in uh, South Africa, which is not exactly a place where <laughs> everyone has got these sort of concerns. There's a lot of people are starving. There's a lot of other issues which are more apparent. Yeah, yeah. But um, to change the subject slightly,
3: um, well, well, I I, 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 wanted to sort of um, just to finish that thought is that they, um, so, so self esteem became like the, the, you know, the, salute cause and solution to everything, and then people started to say, well, actually, no, you know, um, actually, maybe too much self esteem is probably an issue. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. Be <but laughs> a bit of
0: an um, asshole then, like, aren't you? you end up <laughs> yeah. Donald
2: Trump.
3: Yeah. The, the, um, at the end of the day, everybody sort of agreed that some sort of emotional disorganization was the cause of all problems right but what's interesting is that the very first claims makers for self-esteem or sorry for happiness were the were critics of self-esteem um mm-hmm. and so happiness so self-esteem gave way to happiness happy, happiness gave way to well-being um well-being is still really really powerful but it's being superseded by other things um like mindfulness is a big one um and I think um, well-being gave way ultimately to mental health, which was interesting because when mental health first started to explode onto the scene, I thought it was just the same sort of problemization of mental health that's been around for a long time. But actually, it's not. It's um, I think it's grown out of the problemization of well-being. Um, and I, I really hit home for me because my students will say... Oh, um, you know, <laughs> no, no, it was, I was walking through the foyer of um, Swansea University and a student handed me a flyer that said, one in four people will be affected by mental health. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's, that's pessimistic. Like, <laughs> um, but mental health had become a shorthand for mental illness. It's um, very interesting. So but to, anyways, so yeah, these the things...
2: If, uh, yeah, um, exactly on the subject. Uh, but in general, people are mostly unhappy, aren't they? In Britain, for instance, depression is the most treated disease by the NHS. There's much talk about loneliness as a social problem with isolated elderly in aging societies, people living with partners less and less, marrying later, the breakdown of the traditional family in uh, the United States, for instance, among working class people.
3: You meant the first one of the first things that you said was that, um, we are really unhappy. Well, actually no, I mean, that's the issue, I think, with using happiness as an indicator. People have a tendency to make the best of a bad situation. Um, uh, and you know, uh, you know, around the world, the poorest people, they see their circumstances in largely individual terms. and um they they don't rate themselves as all that unhappy. Um, that's actually been used as a reason to keep people in really bad situations. Um, but it's actually a testament to res- the resilience of the human spirit. The people are able to say that they're pretty happy, given that they're like, you know, slum dwellers and prostitutes and so on. There's actually studies of, of the lowest of the low in India, for instance, um, that say that, you know, they're not actually all that unhappy. And I think and one of the papers that looks at this is... is Probably one of the more disturbing ones that I've come across in my research shows, you know, the the conclusion then is not that, you know, that people uh, tend to be fatalistic, but why in the West do we have a stereotype of poor people as being unhappy? <laughs> that was the, uh, anyways. Um, so actually, people don't rate themselves all un- unhappy. Um, even after the crisis and that sort of thing in order to make the claim that people are unhappy they will bring in other social problems and label them as problems of happiness which I think is very interesting something very interesting is happening in society when we are 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 so used to or we connect so much to um, this bringing together of a wide array of phenomena under the umbrella of emotion because how you define a problem is really really important and it contains the seeds of its solution so if the problems that face us are mainly psychological then the solutions are also psychological and i i've been trying to get that across to people for a long time (laughs) And, and and actually i had a debate with mark fisher um about this because um he was saying that we need to politicize depression and I was saying, no, we do not, because if you conceptualize the problems of our times as problems of depression, well, you've constructed a subject that is more likely to be damaged by experience than do damage as a result of negative experiences. These are victims that need help, not active subjects that need to be freed.
0: Okay, but so, um, so, and can, if- I, can I come back to you on that because i think there's mm-hmm. is there not a different way of framing that so i, I totally buy your your argument and um, both in terms of you know how these problems come to be constructed and they're constructed in such a way as to make them only amenable to psychological um, or maybe social policy solutions and not to to genuine politics fine mm-hmm. but is there not a case that you know society in some way is i mean as mark fisher argued and i i have a lot of time for um, his argument That society, certainly in Britain, is kind of depressed. It doesn't have really a sense of future, and that it is a more political way of looking at these issues of depression uh, and also of treating them not in in an individualized and medicalized fashion, but really making it a, a social issue. So, I mean, to put it kind of a bit more concisely, is issues like mental health, depression, anxiety, and so on, are they not symptoms of, you know, contemporary alienation? And that doesn't mean that. The, the, the solution that's necessary needs to be a psychological one, but that they give voice to or is the way that is expressed um, a deeper alienation, which needs to be transcended through through political action.
3: Yes, I do think that they are the way that we give voice to alienation today, but I don't think that's a good thing. And I don't think it's inevitable because what that um what what you're saying is basically that or, or what the why people like this claim they they like it because it says capitalism makes us depressed ergo capitalism is bad But what you're assuming is that all human beings will react the way people in anglo-american Societies react and have always done so and will always do so when confronted with adversity. That's not the case every culture presents a repository of images and symbols and categories through which we're invited to make sense of our experience. Our culture offers us mental illness categories. Um, And so we are more likely to draw on them and use them to make sense of the experience of adversity or problems at work, you know. For instance, work stress, right, The, the, the word stress, didn't um, emerge into the sort of common or, or everyday lexicon until the 1960s and you can say well that's because work became so much more stressful beginning in the 1960s but I don't I don't buy that I mean if, if you look at um, capital, um, Marx describes, or volume in volume one, he has all these vignettes of what it was like um, for the you know industrial working class. You had like people's limbs getting ripped off by machines, and um, you know the, the the woman who was forced to sew dresses for like eighteen hours straight who just dropped dead. You know, no, no,
0: like, sure. But I think th- th- those are not, that wouldn't be to to say that these problems are equivalent in any way, um, or that they're equally di- difficult to to face, but that and being very culturally and historically specific here so that we're talking about contemporary anglo-american societies is it mm-hmm. not the case that this is that this is the way that alienation expresses itself and that you know that that it has maybe to do with individualization that you know in the past uh, people were less unhappy because they had maybe social bo- greater social bonds and um, institutions to rely upon that today they lack and therefore do feel vulnerable but that sense of vulnerability is a reflection of a of a real lived experience. It's not just something that is you know constructed or given to them by by the discourse.
3: Yeah, that's the thing that you need to understand. That when I say that it's constructed, I'm not saying it's not real. It is absolutely real. Culture bound sy- syndromes are real, but they're not inevitable. We really do feel damaged by our experiences, and I think that's the thing when you're when you're very critical of things like um, people making claims about trauma, uh, being traumatized by experiences that used to be sort of common everyday, um, discomforts, you, you, you it, 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 sounds like you're saying, but they're not really traumatized. They're putting it on. No, they really are. That's the thing that people need to understand The p- people are really and truly traumatized by things that wouldn't have faced people in the past. So the, ex- the experience is real. The point is that it's not inevitable. Um, Ian Hacking has a really good paper called The Looping Effects of Humankind, where he says you might have this idea of first there being the way of being, right, the the, the kind of existence, and then the category that describes it. That's not the case. The, the humankind um, and the and the category grow together. The way of describing it, it grows together. It is, it is um, a dialectic between the category and experience. So it's absolutely real, but it is not inevitable. And so what you're saying is this is a real experience. This is how alienation is being expressed today. So therefore, we should politicize it. Well, every time that I hear a sort of about a a way of expressing political discontent that keeps being co-opted, I wonder whether or not that way of expressing discontent um, contain the seeds of its own destruction. So um, uh, some years ago, I remember that carnivalesque protest was like a really big thing. Whenever something bad was happening, everybody would go out and have a big carnival. And I went to a, a conference and I was delivering a paper to talk about how um, the anthropology of carnival sort of always pointed to the fact that carnival was a safety valve for emotion, a, a way of like letting off steam. That's what the function the functionalist approach to carnival was. And there was another paper at this conference that was talking very frustratedly about how carnival keeps getting co-opted by capitalism. Well, you know, follow it through to its logical conclusion. What was the carnival ever going to do? You know, you you can't bring down capitalism by having a party in front of it. You need to really think through, you know where that where that was going. And so i I've been in talks with with somebody about writing a chapter in a book about um, politicizing um, mental ill health in the workplace. And I was saying, i know that it is a powerful criticism to say that um the contemporary organization of work makes us mentally ill but in practice the response is being minimal and therapeutic and 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 the author came back to me recently says it's being Mm -hmm. co-opted they're they're coming in and they're giving us mindfulness training and um teaching us how to meditate and i said it that, that was already in it and that that's also the the same critique that wainwright and Kalman make of work stress that not you know the 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 prize was the radical reorganization of work but in practice the response was minimal and therapeutic you know you're more likely to be offered therapy for a job loss than help with finding a new job
0: yeah i mean i think so i do I, find that i do find that more convincing i mean i'm still not convinced entirely um that we shouldn't somehow politicize depression mental health issues but i do entirely buy your argument about co-optation i I think we were saying on the podcast another on another episode that precisely if you're proposing something which is very easily co-opted by capitalism perhaps you know you really have to rethink that that does tell you something about how radical or not uh, the politics you're proposing actually is
1: just to Mm -hmm. clarify if we could just clarify the terms of the debate then um what do you mean what would it mean to politicize mental health and depression in a different way than alex
0: well, I mean, yeah, that that's a good question in terms of, you know, how to do it in a way that isn't easily co-opted by kind of fairly trivial um, or even more serious, but very interventionist and authoritarian measures, um, which we should obviously be very certain in you know, in trying to guard against. Um, but it would be about talking about issues such as the creation of public space or ways different forms of living to uh, which create sort of greater forms of of social bonds um, and mutual dependency uh, on each other. Well, they are talking about that.
3: That Um, is perfectly within policy. In fact, you don't actually need to give anybody more money. You just need to give them more trees. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) as long as people have trees to look at, they rate themselves as higher, as happier.
0: No, no, I mean, I, I, I totally buy that. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm, but this would all be with the caveat that none of it could be really top down. I mean, this would have to be somehow b- bottom up led by, you know, political parties or social movements and so on.
3: Um, if the main problem with capitalism is that it makes people mentally ill, I would much prefer giving people SOMA just, or, you know, just hand out drugs. Because to say that we need to radically reorganize The way that we distribute things in society, I mean, radically overthrow the market system is a massively disproportionate response to the supposed problem.
1: Is that what you're thinking of, Alex, was getting free drugs?
0: (laughs) That isn't at all. I mean, it was more along the line, you know, I mean, I think, and and this isn't even the point that I'm making, but more that I think anybody listening to this would be the first thing that would spring to mind would be more free time. I mean that especially in the United States where uh, working hours have been steadily creeping upwards for, for decades uh, and people working several jobs and so on, uh, that the levels of kind of, of how it's, you know, the way that the, is, it's indicated is higher levels of stress that people would say, well, you know, if you had more time off for the same amount of money, that would be a big step forward for many reasons, but also for the, for the reasons relating to mental health.
3: Oh, oh no! You be careful with that. Um, Okay, so (laughs) this is based on the assumption that work is not life. Life is the stuff you do when you're not working. You're sitting on your ass. You're raising your kids, that sort of thing. That's not necessarily a. Yeah, that is definitely the way work is experienced within capitalism, where it's you know highly alienating and so on. But work is what makes us human. It's. What allows us to express our creativity, um the problem is the organization of work under capitalism, so we're alienated from the products of our labor um, from having any sort of meaningful connection to what we do. The solution then is not to just forget about it and cut it off. Um, and more free time has to also have see what what, what, what why I'm frustrated with this is that it we've on the left, we sort of cut ourselves off from um, materialist understandings of capitalism. I think if you want to solve a problem, 90% of your understand your energy needs to go to understanding it, which is why, you know, I'm a Marxist and why I enjoyed Karl Marx so much and found it so surprising, found reading, actually reading Marx very surprising, was that I was expecting critique. I was expecting, I was expecting an endless stream of critique and solutions. And what I found was an endless stream of, understanding and attempt to understand what capitalism is and i'm frustrated because we've lost that we are all we do is criticize um and and there isn't enough understanding so um uh this idea of of like more free time it's missing the other side of that which is um yeah more free time is would you want to be unemployed well you've got loads and loads of free time
0: well, I mean, they're, <laughs> but more... they're not. They're, they're, one doesn't imply the other. I mean, we discussed this on the last episode. But actually,
3: does with, so in we, we, Germany? There was sorry. Go on.
0: Yeah, no. I mean, we discussed um, uh, issues of universal basic income with Lee Phillips on a previous episode, and it's something that we're going to return to on this podcast as well. Um, but you know, I think I think we all were kind of agreeing at that point that you know we didn't really buy that idea because. It's trying to create some sort of, you know, communism within capitalism and that basically we wanted to defend, in some sense, the value of work. and I mean, non-alienated work uh, and that, you know, that's believing in, in a, some sort of a humanist work ethic, perhaps, rather than a Protestant one. Um, and that's something we defend. But, you know, it's always been a, a socialist demand for, 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 you know, for more leisure time, you know. And I, and I think that would – making that demand today would be totally in line with that history of, of socialist agitation and um, and activism.
3: Yeah, absolutely it would be so long as it wasn't accompanied by lower pay absolutely,
0: and you oh, yeah, that's, absolutely. Why,
3: that's why i was saying that why i'm so frustrated with that is that you ca- you have to be careful because um otherwise we're like yay yay less work and now you're working part-time and you're fucked like oops excuse my language
0: <laughs> <laughs> no no we're, we're, um, we're, we're not listed as a clean podcast so you know it's already okay. done <laughs> are we not well <laughs> we should be
3: but but the, this that's is the first swear on
0: the podcast
2: <laughs>
3: oh darn. I'm really bad for that I've <laughs>
1: my a- husband. So <laughs> you made up for it by saying darn so it's fine.
3: <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> but um in recently in um I, I actually had a friend um I believe a socialist friend who, who was very optimistic and excited about a recent union um victory in germany where they had won a 28-hour work week but it was very much based on this idea of like spending more time with family and so on and it was at a cut in pay (laughs) so Mm, it actually was not a victory in the slightest and in fact it is part of a trend of recasting um so-called uh no sorry recasting um worker unfriendly policy that um that employers have been trying to push through for a long time at recasting them as employee-friendly uh, sorry employee unfriendly policy as employee friendly so as flexible work um, when actually it's flexible mainly for the employer um, so it's trying to deal with the problems of you know unemployment and and automation and so on by giving people both less money and less work mm. and that's not good you yes you want to agitate for a shorter work week um, but without any cuts to benefits without any cuts to pay
0: no absolutely um I th- and i think that question of uselessness and the specter of uselessness is something that we're going to come back to on future episodes maybe you want to join us for that even um i think phil was going to jump in because uh we were yeah gonna move the discussion so-
1: on. i wanted i was i mean it's been i've been enjoying listening so far it's been really and i think capturing you know the it's been very useful in fact to have um different elements of the issue captured from all sides i wanted maybe to broaden the debate out a bit to think a bit about moral panics which is one of the classic um you know one of the classic kind of domains for constructivist social analysis and i know um you've uh, focused on moral panics as well and i was wondering we wanted just to ask you what whether you think we're seeing an increase in waves of moral panics or if there's some way to um get a grip of on what's happening with moral panics today and whether there's any link to the kind of emotionalism that you were describing earlier.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually, after I finished this book, um, I would like to write another book about left-wing moral panics. Um, because, uh, what do you, it, mean, what do you very... mean by
1: left-wing moral panics? Can you just explain? I,
3: yeah, so we're sort of entering into this weird phase of um, left-wing moral panic. So the moral panic is usually associated with right-wing Um, You know, or like conservatism, like church ladies, that sort of thing, Um, you know, um, panics about the role of women in the workplace get played out through um, claims about children getting too fat, you know, so um, they're not uh, women aren't, um, you know, at home cooking nice meals for their, their children. Um, but, uh, and these sorts of claims now are, are sitting quite comfortably within the left of the political spectrum, which is very interesting, you know, um, sex abuse panics, another one, um, the the sort of moral panic par excellence was the satanic panic, very much a fear of, you know, um, of, of like social change and that sort of thing that, um, you know, the 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 children who are being left with the keys to get into the house. Where are the parents? You know, they're doing these terrible. uh, The children are taking part in like Dungeons and Dragons. Da da da. So it's very much associated with um, the right. But what's interesting is that as the economic base of leftist movements has dropped out, um, the vac there's been this sort of vacuum um, that's been filled by moral concerns or at least apparently moral concerns um and so it's become very much a politics of virtue um so could you give us some kind
1: of examples of left-wing moral panics uh i
3: don't (laughs) i need to uh i need to think about this a lot more before i stick my neck out
0: Uh. (laughs) okay let me let me stick let me stick my neck out for that i mean i think we've previously discussed perhaps I think between us, I'm not sure if on the podcast, but, uh, you know, whether Me Too con- is is would constitute a moral panic um, and that, you know, where you end up looping in all sorts of different forms of, of behavior and misbehavior uh, and criminal acts all together um, into one big glob of, um, you know, sexual sexual assault. Um, I mean, would you agree with that or?
3: Yeah, certainly on the outside. Uh- <laughs> Um, without looking into it in a great de- if I, you know my first first thought when this started to come through was this is a moral panic it's classic it's a it's a classic moral panic um you know you it you know disproportion um and then you start to see you know when the the original sort of um evil people the folk devils aren't enough we start to you know search out you know it starts to broaden out to include all sorts of um you know smaller lesser evils that sort of thing um so you definitely see the folk devils um the the victims who suffer who suffer greatly that sort of thing and i think that um part of the reason why these things have become so powerful is like um is that uh you know we we've lost we, as a society, the the politics of victimhood have become so so powerful, and such a powerful goad, such a powerful way of getting attention for claims that, um, these any sort of movement that can claim that that can claim its victims to be you know absolutely pure and its villains to be absolutely evil, very much are making headway, on the left, which is really a shame in a lot of ways because. Um, I don't really see why we shouldn't be able to feel empathy or throw our weight behind um rational subjects not just victim victims so for instance um there was this whole thing about you know migrants uh and you know we all felt really bad when it was like children women and children they had no choice they didn't want to didn't they don't want to leave their country but they have to but those economic migrants Mm. I don't know about them, you know. So if you're like exercising a rational choice to try to make your life better, you're kind of suspect and we don't like that. We like you when you're wholly pure, wholly innocent and
2: suffering terribly. I'm gonna jump in here on this point. I think uh, part of what's been interesting about what we've referred to earlier about this sort of individualization of emotion as politics making claims as a victim, a uh, traumatized subject, a somebody who's gone through a set of experiences which have been individual and unique, as your way of gaining access to a public platform is that these sort of politics doesn't really come with the solutions besides an emotional solution. So in the case of responses to uh, certain uh, public acts, it's always we want to shame the perpetrator because at the same time, the logical conclusion is you're either going to call for a sort of punitive punishment from the state, a sort of carceral solution, which a lot of people on the left would not be comfortable with. In fact, most people would be very skeptical of the way that uh, carceral intervention from the state has worked, particularly in cases of uh, things like uh, sex crimes because of the history of sort of racialized sex panics. But I think that in the absence of making a clear policy demand or some sort of structural uh, proposal for change, it becomes a sort of emotional way of expressing some sort of catharsis through uh public uh shaming in other words or this uh, expression of wanting the person to feel bad instead of outlining a different political solution do you think this is a recent turn or this has some sort of further implications where do you stand on this
3: yeah i mean that's what moral panics were always about right i mean how do you know that you're good because those people are bad it's, it's always been a way of affirming the goodness of the, the in crowd and the badness of the out crowd. Right? And I think that as we've lost the, um, the sort of material underpinnings of, um, of leftist politics, of, of any kind of you know, um, sense of what we're actually fighting for, some sort of principles that can guide movements, what you're sort of left with is we're the good people and they're the bad people. Um, And this really hit home for me when I was reading an article recently um, uh, from a journalist in the United States who'd attended a white supremacy rally of some sort and um, was really astonished by the fact that the um, white supremacists were espousing apparently anti-capitalist slogans. And uh, as I was reading it, I was like, well, that's not surprising. Um, That's always been what fascists have done, you know, national socialism, that sort of thing. Nazis were ostensibly anti-capitalist, um, but they're anti-capitalist. They conceptualized capitalism as essentially like Jews, <laughs> you know, like yeah. bad people. They were scapegoating, right? Um, and so I. But uh, the 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 journalist kind of mentioned it, but not really. And at the end of the um, at the end of the article, she says something like um. So we on the left need to be clearer about what differentiates us from the um from the right and that is our vision of a of of a a caring and inclusive community. And I was like, whoa 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 whoa. So your main diff the main difference between you and fascists is that you're nicer. Is that really where we are now? You know, if you look at Trotsky's um essay what is national socialism where he talks about you know he, he makes fun of the the nazis and what their their so-called socialism the differences that he saw between um you know marxism communism socialism and and national so- socialism were huge and they were very very clear you know i was going to um, say an
1: inclusive an inclusive um organic community sounds pretty fascist <laughs> already doesn't it yeah i mean
3: yeah <laughs>
2: I yeah, mean, it's certainly the case that uh, contemporary sort of uh, neo right movements, such as the alt right, make use of this narrative of victimization and uh, sort of constant oh, yes, trauma yeah. and the and you know this sort of idea of um, white or, genocide. Yeah, exactly. Like we're being bred out, we're under constant fear, and they use the sort of same language as people previously used to assert civil rights claims in terms of minorities to defend upsurge uh, racial nationalism. But it, it's Even the point, was, is yeah
1: it's the point i think isn't it because um it's the 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 claim of victimhood is traditionally a conservative one um the time is moving too fast for us we're being left behind we're being um you know we're kind of being our society our values our culture being eroded by the forces of modernity um we're under threat everything about our way of life is under threat and so i mean the you know um it's not accidental, I think. So it's reiterating a very long theme. And I think it's really the problem is that the left, that it's become so um, enamored of and dependent on uh, a politics that's framed in terms of victimhood, shows how conservative, in fact, left-wing politics has become.
2: This brings me to a sort of final question in regards to the effects of social media on these phenomena. Social media, for instance, has given rise to sort of illusion of being popular. You have so many friends and Facebook and followers and Instagram, but you do not actually encounter them in real life. And furthermore, in terms of politics, you might have uh, 10,000 followers on uh, Twitter, and they might retweet every fast-paced political diatribe that you deliver. And you might be able to sort of excise some sort of cathartic energy in terms of denouncing or identifying somebody as bad. But you spend most of your time by yourself. You're not exactly building either sort of a social being in terms of meaningful interactions or building collective power. How do you think social media is affecting this turn to emotionalism or in terms of conceptions of happiness in the current age?
3: Um, I think that um, social media has really laid bare this unholy union of consumer politics and identity construction. Um, So you've you've got this situation and it's it's also um, really just made clear the massive alienation of current leftist movements from their traditional political basis. So you, you've got the situation where so-called leftists are canvassing capitalists to fire workers, you know, because they said something that they didn't like. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's really shocking. Um, it, so... I think that that somebody—I uh, wasn't sure who, which who who, uh, who it was that said this—but um, you said something interesting when you were me- when you said that um, the politics that it's a politics that doesn't come with any solutions, and I think that's really important. Um, the purpose of the pol- of politics today is not actually to make anybody's life better; it's to make yourself look better. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and, and I was I, I was interviewed on, I think it was Sky News recently, and I totally chickened out in my argument. And I, I wish I would have said this, but they had asked me about Trump's comments about um, shithole countries. And uh, and I said, you know, he, he said something bad and everybody was angry because he broke this facade of niceness. Um, and you, the, the main goal of politics now is ensuring that everybody talks nice to each other as though we can somehow talk Exploitation out of existence talk structural inequality out of existence or as long as we all talk like everything's hunky-dory Then everything will suddenly magically become hunky-dory <laughs> I mean, I that's uh, a, And
2: I think it's a good point I mean for instance Obama deported a record number of uh, People who came to the United States over his presidency, but he didn't call them uh, rapists or murderers or mm. use them but more so I was going exactly. to I was going to like just push you in one point point. So the counter argument, and I think there is some merit to this coming from uh, these sectors of the left, is that in the absence of being able to win material victories, we can at least cause some attitudinal shift in the sense of that uh, it's more taboo to be overtly racist, to be overtly sexist. And at least if some in the essence that people have got less sexist and racist in some respects through these sort of cultural moments and becoming aware. And certainly it seems to be the case that in this cultural moment, there is more of a taboo, in, at least in, in uh, a lot of spaces, even though there seems to be a backlash to it, towards the sort of overt bigotry. Do you? Th- I mean, I think there is some argument to be made that, I mean, even if this isn't an ideal solution or a politics that's ready to lead to deep structural changes, it's at least leading some attitudinal shifts, which isn't something just completely right off.
3: No, and, and actually, like, I mean, I wrote a book called the Semiotics of Happiness. Like, I do think language is really, really important. And I think the language that we use to describe problems is really, really important. But I think that we need to um, supplement our understanding of language with an understanding of the structures that precede or are in a dialectical relationship with language and, and that we can never lose that. I think in a lot of ways, the... Um, the politics of language and the obsession with symbols come is, is very much a politics of defeat. Um, and it's very interesting that we ha- we've actually had two waves of political correctness. Uh, do you know when the first one was? Early 90s, wasn't it? Early 90s, exactly, yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting that that was right after the fall of the Berlin Wall, that people became really, really obsessed with language and language policing. Uh, and then we had a second wave of political correctness after the sort of Arab Spring um, and the, the experience of failure of movements like Occupy where, you know, there was a, a moment there where people actually thought there would be revolutions. Um, and that sense of utter loss and defeat was palpable. You know, at the end of it, although we refuse to admit it to ourselves and perhaps I actually got a book um, that I was supposed to review the other day that was very like, oh, 2011 is this wonderful time, this awakening. And I was like, (laughs) "Uh, you're (laughs) refusing to learn the lessons of the past there. Um, So I think that we became obsessed with um, controlling language because it's the only thing we feel we can control. Because everything else, I mean, like e- the economic sphere, do you really feel like you can um, exercise any control over that? No, but you can control how people talk about it. I mean, um, it's, so it's I think it is.
2: There's an attack on the left in the sense of like somebody like Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn, when they articulate a sort of class politics, are accused of ignoring other, other issues or being uh, speaking in the wrong way of bullying. <laughs> And that's a way of sort of uh, liberals who are hostile to a sort of more social democratic uh, project of uh, waging attack on their left when they have no sort of uh, political substance to help them.
3: Yeah, I mean, like, uh, that's the thing. It's like we can't do anything about the real problems that face us, but at least we can make people police their language. Um, uh, yeah, and to a certain extent, maybe it does make people think twice. and that was one of that was the answer that i kind of gave on the the sky news or whatever it was she said but do you think and i was like you know you've had racist institutionalized racist immigration policy for ages in these countries and nobody says anything about it trump says shithole countries everybody loses their you know Mm -hmm. um and and, but what i wish i had said is that well that's that's the thing It, it won't actually draw any attention to institutionally racist immigration policy. I mean, does anybody even remember the shithole country's comment? No, we're on to the next thing. You know, something else has come along that we all get pissed off about, and we all um, show our virtue by saying how angry we are, and then somebody apologizes, or somebody's life is destroyed, somebody commits suicide, (laughs) you know, and then we move on to the next thing. It's not a politics of actually making anything better. It's a politics of getting people to fall in line. And it doesn't actually do anything about a lot of those attitudes, but it pushes them underground. It gives them an air of edginess and sexiness they wouldn't necessarily have. So there are a lot of people who are saying a lot of really stupid, stupid things right now about race and um, um, gender and that sort of thing. They're totally dumb, but they're getting so, and I mean right wing things, and they're getting so much, um, you know, uh, Uh, attention on on youtube and that sort of thing because it seems really edgy and 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 we've done that yeah and and the thing is that all we've done is is basically say these things are off limits you say this and that's and that's that you question that you're out you know we we excommunicate you from the church or the left Um, and people are leaving people are leaving they perceive it as a as a uh, you know, as, as a stale movement that hasn't got anything to offer them,
1: it's very disappointing oh, if the, the the best you can say is, "Don't say that rather than actually coming up with a a practical collective solution. That,
3: I hear this all like the time. All. I, I was actually at a conference recently, and I just heard this girl behind me going, oh, you can't say that." <laughs> I'm just not, I just want to ask her, like, can you explain to me why it's wrong?" And I absolutely I disagreed with what was being said. Um, but I don't think that she could explain why it was wrong. I, mm. I, and that's what scares me. And that's the whole, you know, goes back to John Stuart Mill, the idea of dead dogmas versus living truths. Like, if we're not allowed to talk about these things, if we don't defend our positions about why, you know, racism is stupid, for instance, um, it becomes a dead dogma and racism becomes bad because it makes people feel bad. But, you know, you need to be able to, you know, arguing with people is not necessarily to convince them because lots of people won't be convinced. But arguing with people makes your side stronger.
1: Um, You didn't get a chance to say it on Sky News, actually, but you got a chance to say it on Alpha Bunga Bunga. There you go. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Which
1: has obviously a much bigger listenership. (laughs)
3: viewership <laughs> a much more important viewership listenership yeah i said i said on sky news something like uh yes i hope that it will draw attention to racist policy and i should have said no it won't because next week we'll be pissed off about something else
0: <laughs> actually that's a brilliant place to leave it and uh i thought you've been brilliant that was really fascinating and actually really challenging and a lot to get uh, our heads around and something we'll have to return to and i think i mean in particular this idea of sort of waves of uh, public enthusiasm, particularly on the left around, we've discussed previously environmentalism, uh, we've discussed moral panics and PC culture, uh, and I think it's it uh, ends up helping paint a very interesting picture of uh, our times today, which is what we're all about. Uh, so thank you very much. You've been brilliant. Um, and just for our listeners, we're back in a week's time on the 28th of February uh, when we've got David Broderin to talk about the Italian elections. It's the return of Berlusconi, the absent hero debate, and what's up with populism, and actually why Italy is actually the country of the future. So see you then. Bye-bye. Okay, that's a wrap. That was also really cool when you said goodbye and
1: there was like a siren. Yeah, wasn't around. that perfectly done? <laughs>